From the time of Romulus to Constantine, Rome has been one of the earliest civilizations after Egypt that's established a basis for modern civilization. And this is exactly what I'm going to be talking about today, making comparison between ancient and modern Rome. And I have a really exciting guest with me today called Victor. Introduce yourself, Vickles. Hi, um, well, I'm Victor. My, my dad's Italian. I've been on, going on a holiday to Italy for, well, ever since I was born, really. Uh, so I have a lot of family there uh, and recently moved to Rome. Yeah, I have some experience with uh, modern day Rome and over the past 20 years. Erotism between men certainly boosts the fighting spirit. So there are many similarities between ancient Rome and modern society. Many of the elements of ancient Rome exist in our daily lives today and are visible throughout our modern infrastructure, government. I mean, look at the US political system with the Republic. I want to ask, so what have the Romans ever done for us? I know, I mean, honestly, they, they come here, they take our beliefs, they take our jobs, they, they, they're just awful, just, just, just one awful thing after the other. And I mean, they've, honestly, I can't think of a single good thing they did. Well, I mean, maybe apart from the aqueducts. Fair enough, the aqueducts, that's, a, that's actually a good one. Okay, except the aqueducts, what have the Romans ever done for us? Yeah, I mean... Well, as long as, we're, as long as we're being fair, you know, I mean, it's just the aqueducts and, well, the sanitation as well. Yeah, fair enough, actually. The, the sanitation. Okay, the sanitation, the aqueducts, right? Let's leave it there. What else? Come on, what else? Like, did it bring us some medicine and education? Right. Okay. Yeah, aqueducts, medication, education, sanitation. Yeah, well... I mean, remember when we used to just drink straight, like straight vodka? At least now they brought us wine, which is a bit more drinkable. And also, yeah, maybe public order and irrigation, things just don't smell as bad, but... Public order. Ooh, I didn't think about that one. Irrigation, that has really sorted out the agriculture. Apart from that, come on, what else? Well, we can travel now, I guess, because there's roads. Um, We're also not you know, drinking that brown sludge anymore. It turns out water is clear. Who would have thought that? I guess general health. I mean, life expectancy is now above 11 years old, which is not bad. It's not bad at all, actually. And yeah, we can travel. Okay, fine, fine, fine. fine. What else? Well, apart from all those things and just general better well-being in life, I guess nothing really. Yeah, I mean, except for the aqueducts, the sanitation, the medicine, the education, the wine, the public order, the irrigation, the roads and the clear water, life expectancy. Yeah, I guess it's a fair amount, but you know, it's nothing to write home about. Okay, I am going to move on to explaining what's happening in this podcast. Number one, Vickles and I are going to do a quick summary comparing how modern Rome is dealing with 
COVID today compared to ancient Rome. Don't worry, it's not about COVID. And we're like, oh, I'm gonna switch off, it's about COVID. Don't do that, it's very brief and it's more about more interesting stuff. So we're gonna compare and contrast the Roman situation today dealing with COVID-19 with their Antonine plague, which savaged Rome from 160 AD until 180 AD. It was contagious and outrageous. At its peaks, it killed 2,000 people per year. I'll just give you a little insight into the Roman medical situation at this point. So this was after, this was 160 AD, so they'd already had Caesar assigning four doctors with a supervising legionary physician to each cohort, and all soldiers themselves were well-versed in first aid. Hippocrates from 460 BC is largely recognised as the father of modern medicine. He came from Greece and gave a lot of his medicine to the Greek world, even today. Uh, doctors have to commit their Hippocratic oath uh, before binding the ethical law guiding them into the field of medicine. So he's so responsible for the foundation of recording illnesses, attempts at treatment and causes of effects. So effectively, the health system was hugely in accordance with religion. So they would have thought that this was a sign from Apollo that they had been hubristic and they would have been at the altars every day offering prayers, libations, sacrifices to try appease the gods. However, there were a few doctors, including Galen from 130, 130 AD, so he was around during the, the time of the Antoninian plague, who moved away from the mythical approach, uh, pursued Hippocratic motives and actually studied human bile uh, the four humors he prescribed egg yolk for dynasty sage garlic was good for the heart they thought uh liver uh cabbage they loved cabbage cato always recommended this for a hangover and willow so you know a lot of a lot of um prescriptions that pagans might use today yeah so so they did have this this big connection with the four humors and this was about restoring natural heat in your body for example gallon procured people with opposites so for a cold he gave people hot peppers and for a fever he advised doctors to use cucumbers of course very important we had the aqueducts, the aqueducts with, with pipe water so the sewage system was second to nothing until the 17th century their main focus was on maintaining uh, motivated and healthy ar- army but their citizens did also benefit from this but then you do also get to the point where it's like oh well they also prescribe violently shaking you up and down and eating a swallow with nestled salt and acid vinegar and opium and some other pretty whack approaches which is when you think yeah, okay, it is 1,900 years ago and that actually makes a lot of sense. But anyway, Vickles, you didn't necessarily ask for that, but I just wanted to inform you before I asked this question because I wanted to ask, do you think that ancient Rome dealt with the plague for its time 1,900 years ago after all this growth of civilization and scientific progression? 
Do you think that it dealt with it better for its time? Oh yeah, 100%. They were definitely more progressed for their time. I mean, even related to COVID these days, in the UK and in Germany and other countries, if you go and get a test, you, you, you give your, your details, your, your phone number, your email, and they send you a result. In Italy, they, they love paper because they just do not have, they don't, they don't have well-developed telecommunication systems. So the, the development um, has definitely decreased because of that. Lots of other nations in Europe have surpassed them. There is still a huge uh, north-south uh, wealth divide, and that's kind of mirrored as well in, uh, in the hospital and, and, and the, the care that people get in hospitals. I mean, Italy does suffer from lack of funding in healthcare and also lack of, it's, it's, there's also a huge lack of organization. We'll have to wait and see where this actually sort of comes to fruition. In, in many uh, northern towns, uh, the hostels work uh, very smoothly. Uh, you get great, you get a very high level of care, but there's some hospitals in the very southern region of Italy that you wouldn't really even want to set foot in because you just know that, that the care you're going to get there um, is that of a very undeveloped country. So effectively, it's a similar situation to modern Greece today that had immensely progressive civilization for its time, including science and medicine, and now has dropped down in compared to other civilizations. No offense to Greece, I love you, Greece. So uh, it was a lot about libations and, and going to Apollo. And I wanted to ask, to what extent does religion impact medicine today? For example, are there any people in Rome today that believe that the plague was started as a curse from God? I know that might sound ridiculous, but I know that Rome is a very Catholic country, so I'm just curious. Um, I mean, there's always... There's always going to be religious extremists uh, anywhere, but obviously, no. Like, I, I feel like people are well educated enough in Italy, at least in most places, to understand how virology works. That being said, Italy is still a very, on average, a very religious country. Uh, you can still see that in for, in, in hospitals as well. Uh, I mean, if, if you walk into any hospital room, they still have a a cross hanging above, like every uh, at the entrance uh, of every room. But you also have to remember that um, there's also a huge divide in terms of how rich people are, or like the, the older generation, the younger generation. And as Italy has a very aging population, on average, Italians are a lot more religious. But speaking to many younger people in Italy, they've some of them might say they're religious because of because of their um, their family background and they've grown up in a religious household. But they themselves are not the most extreme sort of religious fanatics, thinking that that covid is from god yeah perhaps it's just in the realm of the climate crisis i know that the un environmental chief inga anderson said that we must respect the fact that the pandemic is part of nature's way of sending us a message maybe they are barking up the wrong tree perhaps but it is interesting you you have seen people in china and tibet especially Buddhists chanting to mantras to Tara, the, the goddess associated with well-being to gain their protection, which has you know striking similarities with Romans making sacrifices and sending delegations to Apollo. So moving on to the economy, Romanist Empire witnessed a dramatic do- drop 
in activity of marble inscriptions, which is a seriously good indicator of economic downfall. Land prices drop significantly, as we've seen on tablets and taxes. Wheat prices nearly double due to work fit, workforce scarcity. So, of course, you know, in 90% of Europe's small farms have been affected by the pandemic. It's obviously affected it a lot, but how much of a comparison can you see there between ancient and modern Rome? They might be doing better than certain other countries because, um, as I mentioned earlier, Italy's not very developed with sort of telecommunications and just online systems. And because of that, um, I mean, if, if you look to other places like the UK and, and the US, like Amazon and other huge businesses are taking over uh, because everything's being done online. As Italy, as I said, also had a, has an order population um, these small businesses are still thriving more than they do in other countries. So even though lots of them do have the doors shut, I think they're not at as big of a risk as in other countries. Well, that's jolly fantastic to hear. So next I'm going to explore religion's impact on the city of ancient Rome and then compare it with Victor's impression of the impact of religion on modern Rome today. So I'll just start by outlining that I will be concentrating particularly on pagan Rome. So this is, this is before the Edict of Milan in 300 AD, because obviously Rome today has a Christian religion and before it had a pagan religion, so those 12 deities. So I think the most important thing to know about pagan Rome is the collective piety that encompassed the Roman Empire. So I'll read you out an extract, very small extract from Cicero on the nature of the gods. Relig- religionem quae deorum culto pio contiento. This means the religion which amounts to the honest worship of the god. And then he also says, it is not, nevertheless, the number we have surpassed the Spaniards. It is not the force of the Gauls we have surpassed, nor the skill of the Carthaginians, nor the art of the Greeks. Nor finally by this natural and innate good sense specific to this race of the Italians. It is not that, but it is piety and religion and also this exceptional wisdom which we have been made by the power of the God's rules and that governs us. All of this has prevailed over our peoples and nations. So the main principle of the piety of the Romans is that it is what has permitted the Romans to conquer such a vast empire was by the help of the gods. Every single empire, every single province they conquered, they believed was because of their piety. So every morning, the Roman household would would worship its protective spirits, the Penates, for example. Vesta was the goddess of the fireplace and um, they they would worship their life at home. They'd go into the forum and then worship the the um the flame of vesta they would worship apollo for their health and all of these things they designated to each particular prosperity so it encompassed a wide variety of cult practices and beliefs and um, a lot of this is influence on the empire politically socially as well as the future of western civilization so how much authority would you say does religion have over state affairs in Rome and politics today? 
um, for the Catholic population of Rome, uh, they have the Pope right on their doorstep, so to speak. So I think the Pope holds a lot of authority for the Catholic population in Rome and around the world. But then Italian uh, sort of political system and it is, is, is very developed. So obviously it's, it's like for democracy with all elected officials. Now, as far as I know today, the two are, are, are not uh, interlinked anymore. But um, some politicians might ask, might act in religious interests if they come from a very religious area of Italy. And how does religion affect the state of Rome today in events or daily occurrences? One needs only look at like the names of the days and months, like Tuesday, Saturday, like January. And I mean, the languages of the European nations uh, and the names of, planet, of the planets. Um, I mean, you have Mars, Jupiter. Uh, Saturn and Pluto, all, all, all these names are, are based on the names of, of old Roman or Greek gods. I, 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 there are still festivals that occur in Rome, sort of like national holidays are still, still have uh, religious foundations. Rome still has some other religious holidays, Ferragosto, which is Assumption Day, even though apparently it um, originates from the Emperor Augustus. Um, it was later, uh, who, who introduced it apparently on the 1st of August. Later, the Catholic Church decided to move the holiday to the 15th of August, which is the same day as the Assumption of Mary. Of Mary. Apart from that, Italy still has like a holiday on the 8th of December, which is sort of like Immaculate Conception, the virginity of Mary. So they still ce- so they still celebrate the Virgin Mary. That's interesting. Mainly because I was actually going to make a little comparison between gender equality and when i say gender equality i mainly mean just intervention of women into public life comparing it with christianity in the roman empire and with the pagan culture because interestingly it's a very difficult subject to muster but i think from evidence that i've conjured up it seems that there was more female intervention into roman pagan culture than there was with christianity and in a way it makes sense because well, let's look at Genesis, for example. It's Eve who who committed the original sin. She ate the apple, which started off, that's planted the seeds for women as inferior, and that is in the Bible, so that's a Christian concept. And, you know, in pagan culture, we have the female deities who are extremely powerful and who are able to manipulate men as well. So, in general, we ha- we already have this narrative of and, you know, I think um, I, I could be wrong with this, but I'm pretty sure that God is referred to as a man in the Bible. But uh, correct me if I'm wrong. Send me an email. I'm so, I actually need to check that before I make those kind of statements, actually. But uh, it, there we have it. And also looking at stuff like fi- uh, festivals, religious festivals in pagan culture. There are so many festivals that women were on- only women were allowed to attend. So I'll talk about the Fesmorph. Thesmorphoria, which is a festival in Athens to celebrate Demeter as the goddess of harvest and fertility. Uh, and it's about enforcing men to work for food. And it, it, it only married women could go with their children after the harvest period. And it was carried out to ensure a prosperous harvest of crops and sufficient birth rate of children. So we have this little, oh, right, so the women had to worship Demeter so that they could produce more children who then could be men and could then go fight in the army well yes that there there lies the issue there because it could have actually just been to use them but it's sort of a similar story with the Vestal Virgins because they had 
unbelievable rights as women. They were allowed to own their own property because we have this story where uh, Licinia almost, well, we, it, Plutarch says Marcus Crassus tried to sleep with her and this was a, a sin against the um, a sin against the Roman state because what I'll explain is that the Vestal Virgins looked after this, the flame, this flame of Vesta, and this was supposed to represent the safety of Rome. So as long as the, the flame was, was in process, it was on fire, then Rome was able to prosper. But, and it was a Vestal, it was women who had to look after the flame. So essentially, the women were left as primary responsibility for the function and prosperity and safety of Rome, which I find interesting that they were given that responsibility. Because, you know, it sort of seems like when you look at Christianity, they wouldn't want to give women that responsibility in fear that they would mess up. But here, they do give women that responsibility, but then we also have this, yeah, and they had to stay chaste, they weren't allowed to get married, they had to stay virgins to, to remain purified. And that may seem like a problem, but I honestly think that most women wouldn't even want to sleep with men at this point because it wasn't very pleasant sexual encounters. It was more, it was very dominated from accounts we know. So, um, yeah, breaking the vow of chastity would result, result in their death and they would have to go into a little cave and only eat on milk and bread and stuff. But, um, yeah, so basically the virginity of this woman was essential to prosper. So in Rome today, how much do you think religion hinders the freedom of women in today? Maybe not at all. I've no idea. In Italy, they're still very obsessed with people with, with being in a couple. I mean, even when I was younger. Okay, so, so I mean, this doesn't apply to women specifically. Um, as like they always ask, or like almost do not see the individual completely unless they are part of a couple. And I think that that might be related to religion i think religion is quite obsessed with procreation if some, someone's single people always ask it, oh do you have like uh do you have a girlfriend you're a boyfriend or anything it's as if they don't see you as much if you're not in a couple and i'm wondering if that would also hinder women's equality because they might still be they might be they might still be expected to have child childbearing purposes yeah she had an italian housemate and he was very paterfamilias immensely traditional roles honestly he did actually expect me and my other other woman friends to do everything and he also like had no malicious or evil or even lazy intentions it was almost just it was expected of him and honestly he was the nicest guy ever loved him he just had this general reaction that it was our job and we talked about it sometimes we were like I think he's just genuinely being brought up thinking that's a dealio. Uh, the Italians are very obsessed with uh, family values. They, they love spending time with the families. They love being home. And I remember like we went for dinner with uh, family friends and then, and uh, this guy, well, pretty much what he said was, oh, I miss being home and, and, and having my mum cook for me and like having everything taken care of. You see that a lot, especially in men, their early twenties, they still act like 16 year old boys sometimes just because they're so used to being spoon-fed, especially by their mothers. And I think that might also be related to, to, to how your friend had this outlook because um, in Italy, as there's such big family values, it's quite often the mum who's pressured to provide for the family and provide all these experiences like, 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 like the great big dinners and being taken care of and stuff. 
His mother used to send him chickens in the post. I'm quite confused. I mean, like you said at the start that um, that the ancient Romans saw a lot of the the Greek gods and kind of made them their own. And I mean, I speak about Christianity, which obviously has just uh, thought of one god. When did this sort of transition occur? It's an excellent question. Right. So we have Jesus coming onto the scene in first century AD, of course, after death, one AD. Sometimes forget that myself. Another thing I often forget is that Christianity was initially a sect of Judaism because, of course, Jesus was Jewish. So it was both Judaism and Christianity that were posing massive threats to the empire at this point. We have, for example, Nero, who is an emperor and his main uh, sort of association was the Antichrist. He used to burn Christians as candles. So we're talking garden decorations, get a Christian, put some candle wax on them and then burn them for uh, villa decoration. We have this, this Christian church emerging and the letter to the Romans of Paul the Apostle really attests the presence of Roman Christians in the first century the most when he goes to Athens and he produces and all around the Mediterranean and produces this speech about this new Christian God. And just imagine that we have these 12 deities, these 12 crazy deities who are all rapists and jealous and insecure and have caused warfare. And imagine then being an empire where that's all you've ever known, that, that, that religion. But then we have this new god who is omnibenevolent, omnipotent, omni, omnipresent, all that. And he's all loving and the biblical accounts of Jesus and the words people say about Jesus is that he is a lover of of sex workers he's a lover of slaves he you know he does all that water to wine stuff he's he's all around he's a nice guy and then compare jesus to zeus zeus who disguises themselves as bulls and then goes predators on random innocent women and you're sort of thinking well you can understand how the transition occurred but i'm thinking he's sort of run from three two four to six four one this AD shift really went to Christianity and it was the Edict of Milan, which was the principal event, 313 AD, where Emperor Constantine issued this Edict of Milan and that accepted Christianity as the official religion of the Roman Empire. He restored full rights to Christians within his empire. And this, what this did is it created a universal council because the Roman Empire had become, this is now the, this is what we call the Byzantine Empire. They would have still associated as Romans but it's this huge growing empire that is is all around the Mediterranean and its capital is Constantinople. And then this is where we found this new capital as a Christian capital. This is actually modern day Istanbul now, Constantinople. It's, it's quite a shocking thought to think of a shift in religion that dramatic. And I think the reason that it was facilitated is because there are lots of similarities between the pagan world and Byzantine Christianity in the way they celebrated, married, mourned, how they interacted with priests, monks, nuns, saints. They, it, I think the main thing is that identifying your piety as the most important thing over your status. So your, your commitment to Christ or pagan gods, either one, was the most important thing 
about your daily life, where you woke up in the morning, how you ate, how you went to supper, how you married, how you consummated the marriage, everything was associated with religion. So I think, you know, there was no sort of go from pagan gods to an anarchy without any religion. There was still something holding a universal society together, a community. There was actually this guy called Julian, Julian the Apostle, Possets or something who who tried to make uh, the the Byzantine Empire this is 361 a pagan empire again and this was a huge failure because he sort of tried to change the education system in the in the new Greek Christian literature and it was sort of him saying let's look at Alexander the Great let's look at Plato let's look at Homer where these amazing values you know of xenia for example which is hospitality of um let's say cleos of glory of all these things and as i mentioned uh more more interaction of women so you can understand how people wanted pagan paganism to come back into the empire but it, it never did and then it became the official faith of rome and this is the greatest religious influence exerted on the western mind now on i mean christianity is still raving throughout europe so that is how it occurred that's pretty interesting i mean i always thought it kind of happened it's quite like a like a quick change from i mean from this pagan life to christianity a gradual transition that was happening over the course of what over 100 years over a course there were about 300 years because it was finally yeah established in 331 ad so yeah 300 years Anyway, I'm actually going to wrap this up now, Victor. I bet you're glad that it's switched to Catholic and not pagan rituals, unless you're into hitting yourself with stinging nettles, and that's totally fine. I like putting stinging nettles on me. Fickles, thank you so much for coming on. You've been inviting me onto the show. Um, I think it's been quite educational for me, actually. Uh, Rome, when I was there recently, it almost feels like it's, it's crumbling, and it's just so disorganized with enough financial support i'm hoping that it that it can be brought back to its uh, its former glory but Mm -hmm. it's not helpful but that being said it's still a beautiful city to visit because uh so many of the of the ancient ruins are so well preserved it's quite interesting to to walk through the ancient the ancient parts of the city and and to the places where uh people would, would discuss uh philosophy and politics i'll be there in a hop skip and a jump because you know i'm coming soon and thanks for coming on so much. You've been Alexander the Great. You've been, yeah, you have a fantastic everything, really. Good listeners. Erotism between men certainly boosts the fighting spirit. savage, sassy and sanctimonious. This is a male statue. Why is he a victim? Why is he in pain? Why Forgery is the most fun an architect can have without smashing that marble. We must either conquer or die with glory.